every time we get ready to do the show, mm-hmm. it's the first thing that pops in my head. It's I mean, a legendary countdown. I mean, that's that's the greatest intro to any song. Maybe is the it's classic is the intro to Poison. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's going down when you hear. Dun, 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 dun. Damn. Yep. Girl, I must. You gonna sing this? <laughs> no. Oh. I'm doing the Smurf. I'm busy. <laughs> Do you think Pascal had the price tag on his hat in 1991? Yes, and the overalls with one side down. Oh. Let's give free merchandise to the person that can unveil the picture of Pascal with overall shorts with one strap in. Love it. I'm Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for coming. Just a quick reminder, if you're new to the channel, subscribe, and don't forget to click that notification bell so you're notified whenever we go live. We're constantly doing cross streams with other channels and adding new shows. We're just revamping old ones. Just last night, we brought back Beyond the Red Zone, our sports show from a leftist perspective. My normal co-host, Mac, had a last-minute emergency, so I was joined by Pascal Robert, probably the biggest non-sports guy next to Cuba in the TIR universe. We had a very good discussion about Deion Sanders and historically black universities. It was a pleasant surprise. We took calls, so if you get a chance, Check out Beyond the Red Zone on Beyond use. Let us know what you have to say about the situation in the comments. Uh, before I bring in the show cats, don't forget, give them a revolution. New York City, the perfect gift for yourself and the leftists in your life. Get tickets are available to see TIR crew, Ben Burgess, David Griscom, Matt Leck and a cast of many others in New York City at the cutting room. MT, can you hear me? Yes, I can. You know what time it is, MT? Uh, <laughs> no. Hammer time? <laughs> oh, no. It's not hammer time. All right. It's New York time. <laughs> I know. It's not New York time either. It's New York time. We gotta get we gotta get everybody to understand that these t-shirts look great with you, Tim's. The classic original wheat color ones. Very important. We got a mouse pad Pascal's smiling face on it. A rarity. Same with the mug. We got Anglo pessimism as a t-shirt. You're gonna love that. You know what else we got? Fitted. What? Snapbacks. We got snapbacks for you. You said merch. We meant it. Right? Pay attention. Put your Tim's on. 
sweatshirts. <laughs> we got a pullover. We got a hoodie. You're going to want that. You're going to want all of it. And and what about uh, Patreon? Patreon? Yeah, you're going to want to sign up for that too. Because you're going to want to be in the champagne room. <laughs> it's where we really pop off. Oh my God. I'm walking here. I'm walking over here. Well, Tim's. <laughs> Uh, let's bring in your fellow New Yorker, your fellow Haitian. Um, mm -hmm. The question is, is this gentleman wearing Tim's right now? Is he secretly wearing Tim's and overalls under the shirt with one strap down? <laughs> he is the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. There are no Tims on these feet. I'm in Miami. That would be funky, funky, fresh, but not so fresh, just funky. I, I feel like you would have brought the Tims to Miami. No, no. Tims were a little bit later than me. Uh, Tims didn't start getting big until the 90s. So you had Wallabies. I had Clarks. I had uh, British Knights. British Knights were big. When uh, you know that was pretty. I big thought the Ku Klux Klan created British Knights. Uh, I don't know what kind of uh, you know urban legend you get. You got that from? I don't think it was true. In in my in my Negro history book, it said that the Klan made British Knights and don't eat church's chicken because it has stuff in there to make. You I heard about the church's chicken urban legend. Never bought that one. Really. <laughs> No, I never wanted to. I can't. One. I as Tucson is probably gonna make a joke about me never eating church's chicken, which is very true. I'm terrified of it because of that urban myth. To this day, I won't go Did into you church. Check your Halloween calendar. You, you checked your Halloween candy too. Who didn't? Race blades. Oh my god! <laughs> Look, dude. Whenever I see black people at church's chicken, I want to like stand outside like a uh, like those pro life protesters. Wow. Well, there are options, so. <laughs> There's a Popeye's down the road. <laughs> so I guess I'm the only one that does that now. Popeye's mm -hmm. is, better, is better chicken. Thank you. Thank you. And that's how you win. And, <laughs> and, that's, and that's how you liberate a people. Speaking of liberation, okay. coming all the way live from a secret bunker somewhere in the great vast regions of the northwest apparently he just got done with a death star management meeting it's kind of the end of the year death star wrap up what i'm excited to see is what he wore to vader's christmas gala please welcome deep state kuba hello everyone the um Vader doesn't celebrate Christmas. Um, it's because he's a Jehovah's Witness. Um, <laughs> when, when that happened, and we didn't see it coming, um, holidays got lame. Um, I'm not offended that you didn't invite me to the red zone because you're right. But let's face it, if you want Cuba to get interested in sports, have Ewoks play them. <laughs> Ewok Cuba. basketball, I'm there for that. So... So I, I do want to let people in on some inside conversations that we have. So there is a long thread that we have on Facebook because we're all old. <laughs> and Speak for yourself. It's, you look, Negress. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, even we make the intern. The intern is on Facebook now. He's like, I got I to gotta get a Facebook account. <laughs> But anyway, we have we have these these conversations, show conversations, and out of the blue, Kuba goes, "Am I on tonight?" Meaning for the show last night, and I ignored it for like ten minutes because <laughs> I was like, "There's no way in the world he's saying this to me. This is about something different." And then he wrote something else, and I was like, "Why the hell?" <laughs> Would you be on the sports show talking about Deion Sanders and black colleges? 
<laughs> He's a man of many interests. And it wasn't like he was writing it as a joke. Like, he, you know, there are a lot of jokes in that chant. But the fact that he, he was very serious. I was hey. Like, he, he stressed yeah. out. You you need me for any show, any topic. I'll show up even if it's just to do um, Borat impressions. <laughs> I mean, the fact that Pascal called me about that, I was like, Pascal was coming to the sports show? Needless to say, it was a fun show, Pascal. I hope you had a good time. We took calls. I did. It was a good show. We have some new new listeners, new viewers of the show now because of last night. I really wonder what would happen if we would have had Cuba come on there and go, well, you know, <laughs> the thing about black colleges is. The collard greens are excellent. The, color, the, color, the colored greens. <laughs> nice. But look, already. There's one last person that we always have to introduce and that I always get sent a production note reminder. You didn't introduce me. There's no reminder this time. She is the headless, faceless voice of reason. One of you know, Pascal's Haitian sisters in arms. 30% sure she's not AI. <laughs> we won't even get into the AI that Gene is on the AI fucking rampage. Please welcome M2 Scott. Hello, hello, everyone. Really a pleasure to be here. I heart my guys. Um, we had some good conversations today. Cuba got us really ready for the show today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cuba, mm-hmm. Cuba's ready for this show on the level. I, I, there's no words. There's literally no words. I, I mean, I'm. I think I may be at the point where it's more annoying than useful. No, no, you know. It's very thorough. It's very thorough. Thoroughly annoying. 19 pages of of notes, always a winner. Always. Always a winner. Uh, Before we begin, I want to thank you all for checking out the show. And if you haven't done it, please hit that like button. Hit subscribe. Thanks again to Ben Burgess for coming on Tuesday night. Uh, Didn't think that we'd have a two-hour call-in segment. Uh, after that show, yes. that was good times. So please mm-hmm. check out the show we did Tuesday with Ben Burgess. Also check out that real fun intro video that we did for that. Now, society in crisis. The generation before me, which would be the baby boomers, as I am a young Gen Xer, had a very optimistic vision of the future. Advances in automation were going to help with productivity to give us more leisure time to spend with our jetpacks. Freeing up the market would address all our material needs, that future didn't quite happen, did it? The 50-year counter-revolution that we speak about on this show was an assault on some of the public goods governance of the New Deal and Great Society programs of the 40s and 60s. The freeing of the markets with massive deregulation and underfunding of agencies like HUD has shown many Americans that government institutions fail and the concentration of wealth to a small 1% of the population becomes greater. Market freedom has also led to environmental plunder to the point where in the United States, one of the richest countries in the world, the land of freedom and opportunity, we have cities where the water is undrinkable. Higher education, once thought to be a public good for previous generations, is now highly commodified and leaves students saddled with tens of thousands of dollars of debt. COVID showed us the failure of our medical system in this country where we lead the world. COVID fatalities. The fall of the Soviet Union was supposed to be proof that we are living in the dominant optimum system. Capitalism. Is liberal democracy a failed scene? To discuss this further, we have the co-host of the very well-known podcast, The Chapo Trap House, Matt Chrisman, to help us. Hi, folks. Welcome. 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 I'm happy to be here. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Well, well, Matt, I I kind of laid out a very brief, you know, we could have went on for a lot longer. Indeed. uh, The failures. Uh, I do believe we are a society in collapse. 
Um, we don't know what collapse looks like, right? We haven't experienced it before. It's not going to look like the movies where the world just blows up like the Death Star. It's probably going to take some time. Do you have any opinions, any words you'd like to, to share with us on that? <laughs> yeah, uh, I've definitely thought a lot about you know this, about what it means to be in a terminal crisis. You know, like terms like late capitalism got thrown around for a long time. And for a while, they after a while, they kind of got turned into cliches and like, oh, what is late capitalism? You're just trying to sound smart. But I think we can look around us now and say that we are absolutely in a period of uh, late capitalism, as in capitalism in a terminal form where the uh, frontier that that feeds and sustains capitalism and uh, resolves its contradictions uh, is extinguished. And in the absence of one and in the failure of the digital realm to really supply one uh, the way it needs to, the failure of crypto and the metaverse and all that is really evidence of that. Uh, we're, we're now in a fully cannibalizing moment of capitalism when everyone within its structures is working frantically to keep it up and everything they do, every choice they think they're making mm -hmm. uh, is actually undermining critically uh, their own uh, uh, institutions. Uh, and I think that is a new uh, and I think by definition terminal stage of capitalism. Matt, I wanted to ask you, first of all, welcome to This is Revolution. We look very forward to having you here, and we're glad to have you here. I want to ask you a question about a political phenomenon that has been on the rise pretty much for a decade. Many have postulated that we have a rise of a reactionary right that's not only in the United States, but global. Some people use the word neo-fascism, as I saw Chomsky mentioned in the recent uh, Truth Out or, or, uh, article that came out, I think, yesterday. Some people don't like the term fascism because there's a lack of militarism with this with this group. First of all, do you agree with the, 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 the position that we are stuck in a dialectic between the neoliberals of the post-civil rights era and the new rising reactionary right? And if you do agree with that dialectic, do you believe that the posture of the burgeoning Sanders left should be to engage in a popular front with the liberal Democrats to fight these new right wings, or should the right, should the left of the or the new burgeoning left actually point out the contradictions of the liberals that got us into this position? First off, I definitely agree that we are locked in that dialectical relationship uh, between those two political forces, uh, but I, I really don't think that the danger is of the center of American politics, the national government being captured by fascism, uh, uh, Christian nationalism, uh, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the boogeyman. Uh, I think that we're going to get uh, some version of a techno-authoritarianism that just deepens the authoritarianism that dominates so many elements of American life. Uh, it will have, uh, but it will not have uh, a, uh, it will not be in the garb of a fascist dictatorship. It will be technocratic. It will be carried out through algorithm and machine uh, while we carry out the continuing rudiments of uh, like uh, politics and you know elections. We, like that's going to persist uh, at first a smaller and smaller group of people who are immune to the real uh, uh, the harsh immiserating a force that the downward force that's going to be pulling everyone towards some sort of totally oppressed relationship to the state, like the, the, the next, a, a level beyond being subject to capitalism, being, being pushed out of citizenship by one's inability to uh, be economically viable within it. Uh, that is going to happen regardless of who is the president. Uh, it's, and the, the, the shape, the face, the public presentation of it is going to shift with the political winds. Now, I do think that the center of American politics is, is disappearing in such a way that uh, you might end up with some sort of, I honestly think in the near medium term, some sort of military coup, a, a Thailand, uh, Egypt type situation with a, a nonpartisan military stepping in to uh, carry out national politics. But that means politics will revert fully to the state level. Uh, and you will probably see regimes like Florida, like having a lot of the, uh, the uh, uh, political language uh, and pageantry associated with fascism, uh, but its economy and its immiseration machine will function pretty much the same as the one in California, which will 
also have its own sort of opposed political culture to resist it. And the, the real important voting, the people with money left to you know find some place in the system uh, to do, the real uh, choice is not going to be voting, although th that'll still go on. It's going to be moving. It's going to be going to the, the amenable regime. Uh, and then try frantically to stay economically viable enough to uh, continue receiving its uh, benefits. Uh, and if that's the case. I really do think that focusing on building coalitions with liberals to win political uh, races is is uh, a, largely a waste of time because every Democratic victory is tightening the screws just as just as much as every Republican victory is. Cuba. The what you're describing, to what extent is it happening everywhere, and to what extent is it an American phenomenon? The famously, the United States has the weakest, stingiest, most brittle social insurance system in any developed country. Uh, are there different models that, um, and maybe not just limited to the West, but when you look at the People's Republic of China, the virtually the entire story of uh, poverty reduction in the post-communist period has come out of uh, Chinese growth. Are there models where um, maybe the outcome for most people will be less brutal and um, the possibility to live a materially comfortable relatively autonomous life or greater? I mean, it all depends on the degree to which the political structure has at this late date with it, built within it uh, a kind of reinforcing culture around a certain degree of uh, re redistribution to like qualify for legitimacy, not just like how people think the government works, but how the people who uh, actually carry out government policy think. Uh, and I think that those do exist, but they're, they will only be starting from sort of a higher baseline. I think the drift, the drive is, is, is uh, inevitable. Uh, it's, it's, it's the black hole really at the center of the global uh, capitalist system. And it's pulling everyone towards it in one direction or another. And America is at the center closest. So it's where the uh, evidence is most dramatic. And just to follow up on that, to what extent is this endogenous to the system and to what extent is it a product of um, climate change and global warming? Like if we could get clean energy tomorrow, would we still be on the same emisceration techno authoritarian trajectory? I, I think so. We would buy time and you could, and a lot of people can imagine situations where out of that, uh, that new span of time, you'll be able to build uh, social antibodies to challenge and to fulfill sort of the Marxist vision of all of this technological capacity, more than enough to support, to, uh, to get, to provide a bare necessity and, and, a, and, a, and a subsistence beyond above a, a degree of human dignity to everyone on earth uh, is actually put to human uh, ends. Uh, and I, and I, I don't know if that's, I, uh, if that, I don't think that's going to be how socialism emerges, uh, but it's certainly, going to, it's certainly going to require, uh, even to sustain that dream in the medium term, a, a pretty dramatic intervention in the current, um, uh, in the current energy matrix that, that powers this whole thing. Because it is, it is increasing externalities and, and external uh, pressure on the system in a way uh, that nobody within it can individually comprehend. Yes, uh, thank you. Matt, I had a follow-up question I wanted to ask you in terms of the overall condition that we're seeing in American society. What exactly, what is your position on the capacity of this burgeoning left, if you will? I always go by the argument that we don't have a left, we have leftists. Correct, I agree. I'm, I'm glad you agree with me in that regard. But what have you made of the proposed strategy that was put out by the Sanders coterie of democratic entryism? And not to sound like an ultra leftist, but do you think that, that we have evidence that that 
has pretty much failed and has left too much of the left concentrated on electoral politics and traditional movement organizing of working class people in their spaces, which I've made on the argument on this show, is the only way you get a movement, has been neglected to the capacity where we frankly have a bunch of, you know, various entertainment mechanisms, whether it be podcasts like ourselves, who are speaking politically, but none of us are actually going out to actually touch people in the working class spaces that we are. Do you see that as one of the failures of this quote-unquote burgeoning phenomenon, or do you see it class isolated in that many of us are just downwardly mobile petite bourgeois people who don't really care about working class people anyway? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't put it necessarily that we don't really care. It's that we can't really... Uh, we don't know them in the way that you have to know somebody to know what they need and what they want. You know, we can only kind of project across a chasm to them. Uh, and certainly the people who make like left wing culture uh, are in that condition. And most of it's the people who indulge in leftism as a cultural lifestyle are are, are motivated by that because politics is at the end of the day optional. You can but care can about I, other things. Can I interrupt uh, you for a second and kind of follow up on that? But doesn't that kind of go into I don't really care? It's not, I don't know you because I don't care to know you. Well, yeah, I mean, they, but I mean, the, the thing about the leftists is what makes part of the thing that's, that's animates their self uh, identity is that they do care. Like, that's one of the things that makes them feel like they're, they're worthy of the position that they do have in life. Is it the idea of caring, though? Yeah, exactly. Because that's all it can be unless it's substantiated by action, but there's no action they're, again because you're just isolated. And so that's, that's why I think that that's why everyone. Is, and everyone is isolated. But how everyone, isolated even, is... Even, regardless of their class position, if you're operating hmm. as a political uh, entity in America, you're hmm. operating individually. And even if you are trying to better your actual position because you're working class, that's hmm. not the only reason you're involving yourself in politics. It's alloyed with other things. And uh, the, the upshot of it is, is that you're going to do what, to some degree, feels good. And voting... And, and, and spectating politics is the thing that feels the best. And that's why that's where the most energy goes. And I think that like the Sanders campaign had to go through uh, its process for people to come to terms with the reality of where we are politically in this country relative to anybody uh, uh, from the grassroots getting any kind of influence at the highest levels of America's uh, two parties. Uh, that It was something that we could imagine and you could reason it out, but it had to be experienced. And now that it has, I think it's incumbent on everyone to reckon with the real implications of that. And I think they are, yeah, uh, electoral politics, especially at the national level, has to be uh, at every point psychically and organizationally de-emphasized uh, in favor of, uh, I mean, if there's en any energy to put anywhere, it is in the workplace. And that's exactly where the, the, the problem of leftism as a culture comes in, because the people who are talking the most like me about mm -hmm. uh you know left ideas in a public space and the people who are consuming them uh their their workplace is uh either they they don't have a traditional one or it is uh not a space of you know uh a class formation and identity formation the way that like working class spaces are but again i i, I do think that people are definitely sorry kuba i do think people are definitely motivated when when it's time for election time to go out and oh yeah people but to pascal's point outside of election time it's almost like the people are gross unless you need them yeah some sort of tool yeah, so I again i i do think there is a, there is a bit of like you know i can talk about these people i can talk about the homeless i don't really want to deal with the homeless yeah that's why we would like to get our results out of voting because then that could be somebody else's actual job uh, that I can, you know, remain aloof from it. And, and that, that preference is going, if, even uh, if it's not like the only thing people think, if it's like part of a bunch of other beliefs, and even if a lot of people who vote are genuinely concerned, that's going to be the dominant motivation because that's who votes are people who are doing it because they have chosen it as an outlet for how they, their, their alienation in life. And at this point in history, when we are only consumers, we are not workers. We do not experience our self-expressions. We, we work and we experience life with our coworkers, but the identity of worker is not reinforced culturally. So it only exists as sort of a dormant fragment within a bundle of other things that make up 
our identity that we then see reflected in media and given an option of identification with. Uh, and then that's what we operate from. Uh, and that's what motivates voting. And that's what's going to ensure that uh, that the upper ranks of both parties are going to be completely dominated by those who are enthralled to uh, money, which has a persuasive force beyond the individual action of a bunch of disaggregated individuals who show up to vote every two or four years. You don't think the reactionary right poses a particular threat that is, I mean, I know it's animating everything left of the right, that you know they are this harbinger of evil in a new way, so on and so forth. You don't think that there are elements of the right that demonstrate something in terms of their discourse, their politics, that distinguishes them from other manifestations that we've seen throughout history that make them particularly dangerous at this moment. I, it is. It is a. It is an intensification. It is a. It is a phase shift into a higher degree of intensity. Like the, it, you can say all you want that there's that these strains within the right wing have been there and they have forever. Uh, but like, as as the frontier closes and the m carbon monoxide fills the uh, the the driveway, the you know the uh, the uh, the car hole, uh, people freak out, and that is and we are seeing like this spasmodic. Uh, maniacal pressure against a desire to destroy the very structures that uphold these people's rule. Uh, and it's driven by uh, people who, yes, they they vote as individual middles of like the aggrieved white middle class, uh, but they vote in uh, concentrations enough that can just push this thing over uh, because they don't threaten the money. So they're allowed to run riot, but uh, they are also ex uh, exacerbating this pressure against the institutions that does threaten them, that, that threatens to tip them over or make them dissolve faster than would otherwise happen. The thing is, though, voting for the Democrats will not slow that. Mm. The, the Democrats are not capable of, and in fact, everything they do speeds up the process also. It is the two hands turning a wheel, a screw. And they work in tandem, and the Democrats cannot do other than advance the eventual uh, threat that the fascist right poses, however you want to imagine it. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't think it's going to be a, a takeover of the federal government, as I said, uh, but I do think you're going to see parts of this country come under some sort of like uh, a, a genuine uh, police state administered by state governments that's going to be cheered on by the people who vote for it. Uh, but, you know, people are going to be immiserated brutally for economic reasons in every other state. It just will not have the pageantry and the specific targeting by state authorities of one group over another. But the overall immiseration is going to be universal, I think. And what's going to prevent it, what's going to stop it, is people banding together, people coming together to not uh, engage in a abstract politics that that only involves them showing up to vote two or four years or maybe even calling people on the phone. That's not enough if we understand the depth of the crisis. People have to do things every day to help each other. And the only people, and the only way you can do that is if it's people in your life. And it is going to be working together with people in your life and building uh, structures of uh, collaboration with them that any kind of resistance to what's coming can be forged. I appreciate your candor, and I actually uh, your your cynicism. What is cynicism? Your 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 direct pessimism somewhat resonates with me very much in terms of where we, where we're going in this regard. Kuba, you want to continue? Yeah, I I think that there's a lot of threads to pick up on, and one item is that uh, political mobilization is thought of as the only way to organize. Um, unions and electoralism right now have um, fused somewhat and you have these um, outbursts of mobilization for party um, electoral politics every two to four years what would make more of a difference is if there were um, other social formations that could organize people 
that would give them a greater sense of belonging and um, model for social solidarity uh, across um, different identity lines. And there's a book by Vadim Volkov about the post-Soviet Russian organized crime world where the nucleus was, yeah, you had old Soviet era um, criminal networks, but he pointed to veterans organizations, soccer clubs, and gyms, especially ones where um, men were training in martial arts or boxing. That's where you form a spree to work collectively, and then you could put that to work in creating a criminal enterprise. But it doesn't have to be a criminal enterprise, of course. Like, why don't we have leftist gun clubs? Why don't we have leftist boxing gyms? And I think that one reason is that you have such a class polarization that, as you said, the upper echelons of the political parties are governed by money. The money logic has infected them. And in a lot of places, the money logic is ubiquitous among the leadership class. This is true in universities as much as uh, political parties. Um, It's always been true in corporations, of course, but now it's true in nonprofits as well. Um, And unless there's some way to either develop institutions that don't intersect with that money logic or purge um, incumbent institutions of that um, like mechanism, disciplinary mechanism that gets everyone in a position of influence to go along with um, whatever the algorithmic machine demands of them in late stage capitalism, then we're not going to get uh, organizations um, that work towards any kind of, of leftist solidarity or, or even any kind of collective ends. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, what's, I think that the fundamental for me, like when I, when I look at this cha- the challenge to describe it, you know, because that's supposed to be my job, like what's going on, what should we do? Like that is a, an undercurrent of people's desire to engage with my content, you know, and yours too, and, and all the content that's out there uh, is that the act of, both making and then consuming uh, uh, politically themed uh, uh, internet content uh, is a recreational act by definition. Uh, you can argue that it, you use it in your life and it provides like mental, but one way or another, if you want to X compared to the other things in your life, the other time of your life that's spoken for, it is in this, the pie slice labeled recreation. And that means that the necessity the the the, uh, the the pinch of necessity that pushes people together who a day before thought would never be able to reach across sort of the, that increasingly almost seemingly bottomless chasm between people that happens as we grow more and more isolated in our day-to-day lives. Uh, uh, the, the thought that that what, what changes that relationship is necessity. It is it is a push, and a pull towards the alleviating of one's condition. And if you are recreating, you're kind of by definition not in that situation at that moment, regardless of what else is providing in the rest of your life. In that moment, you are recreating. And so it's it, it makes the actual phenomenon we're describing sort of not come up on your radar. It like it makes it invisible. It, it's 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 a dimension that cannot be perceived by the organ of uh, online uh, uh, content, the media culture that we stick our, the big media ball that we stick our head in uh, over the course of the day and then take our heads out of, but then mostly keep them in, you know. Uh, within that ball, like the re- the real work of life uh, is, is not really picked up because it can't be uh, 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 turned into spectacle. It, it has to be engaged with. Uh, in the moment. Uh, so I think that those things are going to happen. Those institutions are going to get built, but they're not going to be uh, as a result of the actions of any group of people uh, organizing towards that purpose as leftists. 
I think it's going to emerge from people uh, acting as human beings. Uh, and that means people who don't consider themselves leftists and are not motivated by their shared vocabulary of social critique and change, but coming to the same necessary conclusions on what they need to do for their life to have meaning uh, uh, value. Oh, so do you, does it, that's a very that's a very fascinating conclusion that basically the the inability of the left to create a material physical capacity to motivate people to help change their condition is in, is so endemic that it will be carried on by forces outside the left because the the job in and of itself is beyond the left. Exactly. It's beyond any political currency. Like the people who think, oh, no, it's the right they could do this because they have like a real like cultural motivating cultural uh, con complex at their center that no, it cannot be done politically. Now, people who consider themselves leftists will, of course, be part of it, will contribute to it, but it, it will not be formed around those identities because, yes, it is beyond their capacity. I mean, they exist at this point to undermine the capacity to even do that. Well, let me ask you a question: we, Will it be will it be replaced by an other by other social institutions, the church, uh, uh, the mosque, the synagogue, uh, uh, for, for, you know, secret societies, so the fraternal sororal organizations, things of that nature? Will there be other institutions? Will it be Will it be institutional? First of all, uh, and will there be other institutions? I want to piggyback on that real quick. The because one thing that we haven't talked about is the decay of the capacity of the state. And yes. one characteristic of um, call it crisis capitalism, call it the neoliberal um, reaction, and is the hollowing out, especially in the United States, of the apparatus of civil administration. Let's yes. call it the um, state-owned enterprises public services, the civil service, the cadres that, uh, you know, in Max Weber's formulation, uh, a state is a uh, power that uh, controls legitimate violence over a territory through a staff. The, the staff is essential, but what we've seen is the hollowing out of the manpower and the, cap uh, the capacity under government control available to run reform programs or deliver services and instead the privatization of that sometimes through it's still government delivery but you do it through contractors and sometimes it's well let's just have private schools let's just uh, privatize the postal service uh, now once privatized you no longer have a service delivery or an effectiveness logic you have an extractive economic calculus. How do we pull as yes. much out of this as we can? And of course, this leads to degradation of the capacity, um, not just the weakening of the services, but also you're eating your seed corn, right? The, the very last thing you consume is the apparatus itself. So the state gets weaker and weaker at providing material necessities. Um, Pascal suggesting maybe other institutions, non-state institutions, churches, mosques, um, secret societies, fraternal organizations step in. That's possible. But maybe that capacity just has gone. Yeah. The um, And not even churches or other organizations that look like they have the mass membership and look like they have the capital, look like they have the real estate. But the skill set and the mentality that is necessary in yeah. order to aggregate and coordinate complex behavior to deliver those kinds of outcomes, to create authority and loyalty and solidarity, uh, maybe that just gets gone. Well, it, the, the capacity to meet these needs is degrading, but the needs themselves are only increasing. And that is the pressure that is going to blow into and against these institutions. And the ones that are too far gone are going to collapse. And the ones that are deeply rooted, and I think the church, churches are certainly one of them, uh, are going to be uh, taken over and, and reformed uh, from within by people who are motivated by uh, something else other than their personal advancement. And that is, in the current system, a, a 
deadly disadvantage because all the only motivating uh, force that, that aligns interests in any institution is self-interest now. Uh, but if that new conception, that socialized identity comes with it, uh, organizational capacity at, at the horizontal uh, level, then that is a uh, that's an advantage that eventually becomes undefeat, uh, 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 uncontestable, and so it'll be. I think uh, it'll be this generalized process of of people coming to the to need to the need uh, the ability of recognizing their own ability to address these needs that now cannot be addressed elsewhere. That will be a vacuum that must be filled, and it'll be filled by people who are only going to be able to be any good at it if they work together as cheesy as it sounds and or, and, or and have the and have the sort of uh spiritual alchemy that comes with prolongedly working together towards a goal although that the deficit could just be paid off in the form of human misery right the... i mean it's going to be but like that misery does compel you know it is its own form of uh, of sharpener of of, in, of, of necessity uh, of, a of a necessity so like that's it's a push and pull that is going to drive everyone to uh some reckoning and yeah many will just be uh, immiserated but others are going to you know come together before that can happen i'd like to invoke the thought of one of our uh, tir uh, compatriots here who's gene bajlan and gene has an interesting theory he gene actually says you know i understand you black pill guys about how doom is coming but he's like we've got cheap food we got cheap popular culture, cheap entertainment. We've got sports. We've got all of the mechanisms to divert the masses and to keep them basically fat, dumb, and happy yeah. with uh, with uh, with uh, breads and circuses. Mm -hmm. I think that the mechanism, the machine, the matrix, the state capital, whatever you want to use the term to call it, the board, mm -hmm. is more vested in dulling the masses with those items that having it get so bad that literally it becomes in an in a apocalyptic hellscape. What do you think yeah. of that position? What do you think about that position? I mean, they're gonna they're gonna pull they're gonna pull that a lever as much as they can. But what we're seeing is just how though that calculus is now being changed without anybody wanting it to be the case by the realities of uh, of climate and the realities of disruption of these precious and and much more fragile than they appear supply chains. Uh, and we're seeing these sort of uh, cyclical uh, intensifying crises kind of knocking the pins out from under them. And like we've had, we now have uh, inflation of significant amount for the first time in 40 years and, and no real plan to do anything about it other than cause unemployment. Uh, so I think that, you know, that, that the ability to sustain that level of narcanization is going to uh, be disrupted and people are going to respond as they must. And I, I want to, mentioned too that um i have some insight into the thought process of financial government um other kinds of elites and the commitment to marketization on the one hand that there is no alternative that um it's always 1996 in their heads that the frontier for capitalist development is open wide and there's just some speed bumps um some crisis, the Ukraine war that's keeping us from the realization or, you know, big bad Xi Jinping that's keeping mm -hmm. us from our uh, techno-optimistic um, market utopia. And the flip side of that is they have license in their own minds um, and in fact, agency in their own minds to turn everything into a revenue source, um, convert any public service, any form of uh, common goods into uh, rent that they can extract. Yeah. Uh, the entire function of uh, private equity or the more Baroque forms of um, the financial engineering is to find ways of uh, claiming a, a rent stream from um, things that other people can't imagine could possibly be property. And at the elite level, that process just accelerates. And the payoffs are tremendous if you can manage it. There's no downside if you, um, if you fail. And there's also no punishment for the 
uh, social harm that is inflicted through your successful rent-seeking strategy. Uh, one of the distinctions, uh, serious distinctions, uh, I think, between American capitalism, uh, French capitalism, and Chinese capitalism is that in the United States, billionaires are absolutely untouchable. Um, you can get away with absolutely anything. And indeed, most of the system answers to them as personal individuals. In France, um, if a president, and similarly, there's no point becoming president of the United States if you can't convert that into at least $100 million. Look at Clinton's, look at Barack Obama. Uh, in France, if you do the same thing, you go to prison. They prosecute former presidents. And the PRC does one better because they will shoot billionaires. And Indeed. that the ability to discipline the executives of capital is, is a major state capacity that seems to vary significantly from one context to another. Absolutely. Yeah. But that very, that power, the power that the PRC has to be able to cap some billionaires if they need to, uh, is exactly why they cannot ever really challenge dollar hegemony in the American led global order. Because to do that, they would have to be a reserve currency. And to be a reserve currency, they would have to remove their capital controls on it, on, on their currency. And that, that would be the end of the, of, the, of the Communist Party of China as the, as the sovereign uh, ruler of that country. And they all know that. So they have to, they, they're right now happy to maintain the situation as it is, where America takes that role. And they get to maintain that state capacity. And yeah, do whack-a-mole with, uh, with their naughty billionaires. Uh, and but the thing is, is, they can't change that unless we genuinely rich, uh, revolutionize our our energy uh, economy, because the petrodollar is is the only dollar of fossil fuel economy. It can, nothing else works. They would have to get uh, a cold fusion, and I know they're working on it. If the but if the Chinese get cold fusion, but again, that probably just prolongs the process. The well, listen, but oh, th there's also. Um, a different possibility, which is what happened in the interwar period. Um, you go from the pound sterling as the global reserve currency to a regionalized capitalist system where there's a dollar area, a pound area, um, a franc area, a Reichsmark area, and a yen zone. Um, and decoupling um, between the Chinese economy and the world financial system, the American economy, that is a recent development that is picking up steam and it is real. Um, and so one alternative is that we're left with two variants of late capitalism, that there's uh, China doesn't propose the yuan as the world um, reserve currency, but it can offer enough uh, liquidity and the mechanisms by which foreign countries, especially its Belt and Road partners, can access uh, Chinese surplus through uh, outside of the dollar system, that you end up with uh, competing blocks. Of course, it doesn't end well if you compare if you think about the interwar period, but um, that is a way in which the rise of China does reconfigure um, global power relations without necessarily um, needing to open up its uh, capital markets. But that does mean World War III, though. Oh, yeah. I, I, wait, you think there won't? You think, you think that's not baked in? Right? Like, I just, mean, they're gonna, they don't want we'll that, so they're going to do stuff to avoid it, you know? Because they do know, oh, if we genuinely challenge America at its own game and we turn this into a multipolar contest, you know, then we're back to... Uh, we're back to war, and this time with nukes. And since they are in charge, and they feel secure in that uh, control, they're not going to. They're not going to risk it. They feel less secure than you think. Um, okay. And there's so certain there's certain uh, red lines they have. Um, for instance, um, I'm very anxious about Taiwan. Um, the after all, the demonstration effects of what a one China, um, one China two systems outcome. Um, in Hong Kong, it has not been lost on the Taiwanese, right? So if that's what playing nicely gets you, then 
uh, we might as well make our stand. That is unacceptable to the PRC within its own mental world. Um, and that alone might get us to um, World War III, regardless of the uh, rational risk-averse um, calculus that um, keeps countries from wishing their own destruction. Uh, I wanted to ask you, do you think, based on what you're saying, Matt, do you believe that multipolarity is a bluff then? Uh, yeah, because I don't, it, it, multipolarity, as you said, that's, that was the, uh, that was the interwar period, you know, that, that was, that, that was uh, Europe uh, when it decided, when it blew itself up and if capitalism, and if the America hadn't been there to synthesize its contradictions and, and, re and refine it for a global audience, then it would have been dead right there on the table. But instead, the, the U.S. picked it up and, and, now, though, with a globalized capitalism, there's no one there to pick up the pieces. Well, uh, well I'm talking about the multipolarity that the, that the Russians are offering in terms of basically taking the United States off the table as the hegemon of record and dividing the power between them and the East and the West, that with the Eastern right. Bloc and the Western Bloc. Do you think that's well, a fantasy? I, I mean, given how they're performing in Ukraine, I'm going to say, yeah. Like, I mean, th that was their opening bid here of like how they're able to, because it has to be girded by some sort of credible military threat. And the initial idea, oh, we're going to just, they're going to wake up one morning and we're going to be in Kiev and we're going to have control of the country. That had been one thing. But their bargaining position now is so poor there. And you got Putin admitting that he's going to have to stay there in the long term, which means it's just going to be a bonanza for U.S. Uh, arms. It becomes a replacement for uh, the, the lost Afghanistan uh, uh, um, camp, uh, the, the camp, and in a, in a context that's much more strategically important now. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think that uh, they're kind of they're they're hoping, uh, but they just they would need to be able to stand up to America on an equal uh, uh, negotiating position to even think about getting there. Instead, we'll be happy to just bleed them dry. Kuba, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think multipolarity as being post postulated by the uh, Russians is kind of a bluff or fantasy? At one point, you told me that you thought it was an inevitability. The so I think that multipolarity um, is going to be a diplomatic and geopolitical outcome of American decline. Um, the United States just can't be as robust a hegemon uh, as it was in the past. Um, I also expected that Russia would win already. Um, I didn't think that the Ukrainians uh, would be able to hold, let alone push them back. And the war is not yet over. Um, there's going to be at least one more major Russian offensive. But even at this point, uh, if if Russia does, let's say, capture all of that territory, the, the damage to its standing um, has been done. I think that that experience might also deter uh, China somewhat from prematurely moving on Taiwan short of uh, declaration of independence. But the outcome will be a deeper political, economic, and diplomatic relationship, not just between China and Russia, but also between China, Russia, and uh, the countries of the global south, um, which have taken this opportunity to uh, rework some of their economic and trading relationships away from the West towards Russia and China. Um, and step out of dollar exchange to buy Russian oil. Um, that's a place where uh, the energy economy um, might begin to be de-dollarized. So I think that the multi- but What about the consumer economy, though? Does anybody have the consumer markets to absorb that's, uh, excess that America does? That's the entire function of the Belt and Road Initiative. It's portrayed- Yeah, but we as, will do a war before it gets to that point. We will go to war to stop that from happening. And exactly, World War Three. So, yeah. you know, I mean, all roads lead to- Yeah. Uh, and on I, that note- <laughs> <laughs> On that cheery note, uh, M. Tucson, did you want to read some of the super chats we have before we take off? Sure. These are just the most recent few. So- mm -hmm. Jeremy S. says, 
Hang on, let me put it on the screen. Is there a way to get beyond social democracy or is that all we got on the foreseeable horizon? Thoughts? I mean, if you're talking about electoral politics, not even that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. a little That's social right. democracy would go a long way. Yeah, I mean, if you, if, if I, I mean, I, when I say, you know, that attention has to be redirected, eyes brought down in terms of action, that doesn't mean people have to stop being uh, voters and stop caring about elections. That actually doesn't take that much time. You know, that's the whole thing. That's why it's so individually powerless. But that doesn't, that's precisely for that reason. You have, there's no reason people shouldn't vote and have opinions on elections and, and vote for candidates of their choosing. Uh, and, you know, but if you're going to do that, yeah, like <laughs> social democracy is about as, as plausible a, a goal as you could get. And it recedes with every day. Hmm. Is there any more? Tucson? We've any more? got our last one is just this comment from JB. The pessimism jokes are funny, but in my honest opinion, it should be said, this is not a doomer black-pilled conversation. We're trying to make sense of the world around us and how to make it better. I agree. I, I reject all the talk about doom pills, black pills, and all that nonsense. Because that, if you're thinking politically, you're thinking in the long durée of, of human affairs. And like you, you can't confuse your position on the parabola with like some permanent end state or like a trajectory as eternal and unchanging. Uh, it, like the Doomer thing just comes from uh, uh, a the belief that like if if I'm going to have a political horizon, it has to be one that I imagine myself involving uh, enjoying. But that is that's never the case. You know, Moses can't go to the promised land. <laughs> and we have another super chat too, Sanky. Bring it on the screen uh, that strong McCallum just did. One second. Um, he says Matt needs to sing us a song. He says Matt needs to sing us a song. <laughs> oh, one eighteen fourteen, the cripple little trip down with Colonel Jackson to the mighty Mississippi. Remember that one, the Battle <laughs> of New Orleans by Johnny Horton. Do, do I remember it like I was there? <laughs> it was a, it was it was a number one hit in 19, I think 1961 and it's just yeah, a song it's just a song about uh the battle of new orleans just a little I wasn't even, for the kids it wasn't even a memo and a love letter yeah. in canada we've gotten a war of 1812 song barrett's privateer yeah oh great Stan rogers that song's can great you, can you hum us a few bars of that one kuba uh, I was told we'd cruise the seas for American gold, fire no guns, shed no tears. Now I'm a man of tears. You just song. make that shit up? No, it's Stan Rogers. It's awesome. No, no, no. We just acting like you like this is what's on. Like when you go for your morning jog, it's like this is in my iPad. You hear that fire? It should Stan be. It's Rogers. a bop. The year is seventeen seventy-eight. I wish I wasn't sure <laughs> now. Okay. Uh, you officially yeah. gone off the rails. This is what happens when you let the white people talk too much on the black show. <laughs> Never again. Never again. Never again. Before this is all over. Well, Matt, I hope you enjoyed coming on This Is Revolution podcast. We, hope we can get you again with some of your other chapel comrades to uh, talk shop with us. Absolutely. This is great. Thank you for having me. Uh, and Pleasure. Matt, you will be joining us in the champagne room. Absolutely. Popping bottles. Oh, this is going to be fun. Should we open up the phone lines for the champagne room? Oh, my God. Pandemonium. We'll open up the phone Practice some of that techno-authoritarianism on the callers. 20 minutes. 20 minutes of phone lines. All right. Matt, you don't take calls on your show, right? No, we do a uh, occasional thing where we can, well, people can call in ahead of time, and then we'll pick from questions. But we've never done a live call-in show. You're um, in for a treat. You are yeah, the opposite of a treat. Look at his face. Hey, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Get your no cheese curds ready. Get your oh, yeah. cheese no. curds ready. Got my Culver's here. <laughs> <laughs> well. Thank you again for joining us, Matt, Cuba, Pascal, Toussaint. Great show. We're getting ready to go into the champagne room. Give us like 10 minutes or so. And we are black. Out. <laughs> Out. <laughs>